0: This week, let's turn to the Scripture, and we'll be in two passages of Scripture for the message this weekend, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and if you're using a hard copy Bible, that's near the end of the New Testament, and Hebrews, chapter 2, and then the second passage of Scripture we'll use is Romans, chapter 8. That's kind of in the middle of the New Testament part of the Bible. And so give you time to find that. If you're using your devices or whatever, all you have to do is just be able to spell Hebrews and Romans. And if you can't, one of your neighbors will help you with that, and it should pop up. Also, uh, Uversion Live has all these scriptures uh, on it for our message today. But I would love for you to follow along. is why I'm emphasizing so much of where to find that. I would love for you to follow because there's some truths today that I think are revolutionary for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, many of you know that I'm a bit of a word nerd. Now, probably more of you know that I'm just a plain nerd. But some of you know me well enough to know that I like words. Those of you who know me best, uh, and I see you laughing, John, you have no room to talk, know I use a lot of words every day. And so I love words. Last week, my, uh, well, to illustrate that, my wife and I both subscribe to uh, Dictionary.com's Word of the Day. I know you think that's got to really be weird. You know, every morning at a certain time, you know, your uh, tablet or whatever just goes bing, and this little word pops up, and you slide it across, and it gives you the definition of a new word, or sometimes a word you already knew. Last week, uh, Summer, my wife and I were sitting uh, eating breakfast, and her tablet, you know, binged, and she slid across, and she just said, Splendiferous. Well, normally, you know, that'd be kind of weird, somebody just say that, but I knew what she was talking about. And I said, what's the definition? She said, it says splendid or magnificent. Now, I think splendiferous is one of those words that if you say, well, that means magnificent. No, I think it's kind of like magnificent on steroids, okay? Where, where you, you, you could say, oh, Magnificent. But I wouldn't just say it that casually if I was using splendiferous, you see. I think it's one of those top-shelf kind of words. It's within reach. It's not out of reach. It's not one of those words we can't comprehend. But it's one of those words that I leave on the top shelf. And I make an intentional choice when I'm going to use it. And so I kind of stretch up on my tiptoes and reach up and get this one. And while I'm reaching for it, I'm thinking, exactly how do I use this? You see, something can happen, and I go, oh, that's cool. But I wouldn't use that with with splendiferous. I would never go, oh, that's splendiferous. You go, what did he just say? (laughs) No, I would would say it this way. While I'm reaching up to get the word, I would go, that is splendiferous. You see, those top-shelf words, we use them differently. Um... Sometimes I think we take those top shelf kind of words, like a splendiferous or something of that nature that we don't use very often. And we'll take one of those words and we'll just start using it every day because we think it's cool. And we, we think maybe we get attention with it. If you're like me, you use a big word and you get attention. Uh, I did that as a child. Uh, and uh, somehow I never recovered. <laughs> but anyway, uh, then we use, we use words every day instead of them becoming top-shelf words, they get harder to just kind of stretch and reach, and it takes longer. And so we say, you know, I'm using that word quite a bit, so I'm just going to toss it on the coffee table here, where it's easy to reach it. You know, while I'm still in my recliner sipping on my iced tea, I can just kind of grab that word and use it. And then sometimes it gets knocked off the coffee table, and it, it just it just lays on the floor. And we'll step on it, and we'll pick it up, and we'll still use it, you know, periodically. And so we'll throw it back on the coffee table, and then it gets knocked off on the floor. Let me give you some examples of those kind of words, okay? Several years ago, when I still lived in Denver, I uh, happened to be around some snowboarders and uh, skiers, mountain bikers, you know that, very outdoorsy, young, 18, 19, 20-somethings. And, and the word epic just kind of invaded their vocabularies. Uh, it was like they, everything they would do. I mean, they would stumble down the stairs and they would go, "Oh, dude, that was epic!" And they would they would talk about a, a ski run, or, or snowboarding, or mountain biking, and it was all epic. So I looked up the definition, being the word nerd that I am. Here's what it is: heroic, majestic, impressively great. Now I had a skier after the last service. Bring me, you know, a picture of him. You know, with snow flying everywhere, skiing down this slope, and everything, and and he had just he had sent it to somebody and it says, "Epic snow day," you know. I still disagree. Uh, I, I don't know about impressively great, heroic. Uh, it may be a, a blast. It may be really fun. But I tend to think something like epic, impressively great. I reserve that for something like, you know, SEAL Team 1 being called in behind enemy lines to rescue people who are being held hostage, and they bring them home alive, and decades of training, and every fiber of their being alive, charged with more adrenaline than any five people ought to have running through their bodies, and every second counts, every action counts, and they bring those home alive and they're successful. I I could tend to say epic about that before I could about watching somebody, you know, carve down a slope and go, whoa, dude, that was epic. So I think, you know, maybe we've taken that word off the top shelf and we've at least tossed it on a coffee table. Another one that gets trampled on the floor all the time is the word awesome. Let me give you a definition. Inspiring an overwhelming fear of reverence. Uh, uh, An over overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, or fear. An overwhelming feeling of reverence. Now, here's why I say I think it's getting trampled on the floor some. So some young lady gets a new hairstyle, (laughs) posted on social media, and her friends are going, oh, Susie, that's awesome, awesome, awesome. You know, I see all these awesome things, all uppercase, you know, with exclamation marks after them. Some kid Bags, borrows, or hopefully not steals, but gets 150 bucks and finds this unbelievable pair of shredded designer jeans. And they come in Sunday night to switch with their new shredded jeans on, and their friends are going, oh, awesome, awesome. I've never felt like a pair of jeans. Mine or anyone else's inspired, let me read it to you, an overwhelming feeling of reverence. Blue jeans just, just can't blue jeans cannot possess that ability. But we, we pick the word up out of the dirt, off the floor, and sh- dust it off a little bit, and we go, awesome. No, we need to put some of these words back on the top shelf, don't we? And there's a word out of the Bible that is a top shelf word, and we use it often. We talk about it, and we hope that people have it, and we... Some, some of us know we have it, some of us believe we have it, some of us hope we have it, but we use it every day, and sometimes I think it gets just tossed on the coffee table, once in a while it gets trampled on the floor. And that word is this, salvation. It's in a passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 2 that I would like for us to read, but before we do, let's get the definition of it. The dictionary says this, just generic definition for salvation, okay? The act of saving from harm or risk or loss or destruction. But the Bible definition, the theological definition, to use the big word, is this. When we talk about salvation from the Bible, it means this. The deliverance. Deliverance. That means set free. The deliverance from the power and penalty of sin. That means when we get salvation, we are delivered from... The power of sin over us, and we're delivered from the penalty of sin that is against us. Now, listen if you choose to use the word amazing or epic or awesome or astounding about that, then that would be an accurate use of it. But we talk about salvation often and we don't grasp all that it means. And I think to do that and to, to not understand and not continue to keep in our minds how amazing that word is, then just kind of leaves it on the coffee table to pick up and use and toss around. So when we repent, when we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, by the way, that word repents kind of like a mathematical word, okay? The Bible uses it, but it's like, I'm going this way. Uh, I'm not paying attention to God. I'm running my own life. And I realize I've sinned and I need Him. And I turn away from my sin in my own life and I turn to Him 180 degrees. That's what repent is. I turn away from myself and turn to Him as the only one who can forgive my sins and who could come in and run my life. So I'm confessing Him as my Lord and Savior. When I do that, what I get is salvation. And when I talk about salvation, there are a whole bunch of words in Scripture before we read this passage. whole bunch of words and phrases like the facets of a diamond that if we don't have all of those words and, and are able to use all of those words, we may not completely understand how complete, how radical salvation is, just like a diamond that is uncut doesn't have the beauty of those facets and the polished uh, uh, sides of that stone that awaken the fire and the beauty from within it. So when we understand salvation, being born again, saved, a right relationship with God, Christian, child of God, uh, justified, delivered, set free, all those kinds of phrases that Scripture uses, then we may miss how amazing God's salvation is. Let's look in chapter 2 of Hebrews now. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. In other words, closer attention to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, lest we drift away from it. The picture is of a ship, the, the, the crew forgetting to set the anchor, drop the anchor in a safe harbor, and the the current slowly drifts them out of safe harbor into the stormy, open seas. And so when they thought they were in a safe harbor, they didn't pay enough attention, and they were drifted out into a place where they're in trouble. So we need to pay attention to the gospel, he's saying, so we don't drift away from it and get into a mess. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... now. If you're like me, I'll read these phrases and I'll go, I'm not sure what that means. I'll just keep reading until I I find something that maybe I can understand. Let's not do that today. Let's do this. Okay? Think back. When did the angels declare a message? To the shepherds. He said, this day is born to, to you, for you. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Three words about this baby. Savior, the one who forgives your sins. Christ, the Messiah who is going to rule the spiritual kingdom of God. Lord, the guy who is going to run your life if you'll submit your life to him and he'll do a better job with your life than you possibly ever could do by yourself. All of that the angel said about this baby, this infant, that no one knew if that was true. But guess what? The writer here says, it proved... To be reliable. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Oh, my gosh. If I hear the word just retribution, I'm not sure what it means, but I know I'm in trouble. So here's what it means. Every disobedience, God knows, God sees, He doesn't miss it, and somebody will pay for it. But here's good news before you get all worried, okay? How shall we escape if we neglect, here's the phrase, such a great salvation? In other words, God doesn't miss a single thing. Every sin we've ever committed, He knows about. But He provides such a great salvation that takes care of that sin problem. Okay? Amen. It was declared at first by the Lord. Oh, this is, this is just evidence, substantiation, okay? Jesus Christ declared it first, and stay with me, then it was attested by oh, those of us who heard, the disciples, the apostles, and then God got into the action. He bore witness by signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, distributed according to His will. So here's that great salvation. Now let me read one more passage before we launch into the, the ex- explanation of that great salvation, okay? Okay. Because in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, guided by the Spirit of God, said these things. And stay with me through this. It's two long paragraphs. But just pick up piece by piece all the things he says about this salvation that we too often have just kind of tossed on the coffee table and not understood how complete, how radical it is. So he says this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Kind of a rhetorical question, but the answer to it is no one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, Jesus, give us, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? When you see God's elect, you're talking about those who've been chosen for salvation, those of us who've been born again. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding uh, for us. That is making petitions on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Okay, that's a great question. It's a question that in some form bugs every one of us on a regular basis. Is there anything or anyone or any situation or circumstance that can separate me from God's love. And we need the answer to that. So, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just in case, he says, just in case that list doesn't summarize it, he says, nor anything else in all creation. Someone asked me after last night's service, well, you know, that all these things that can't remove you from Christ's love. Well, what about us? We can remove ourselves from Christ's love. I, my answer is, anything else in all creation, I think that covers me as well. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Such a great salvation. Here's what I encounter on a regular basis. There are people who have given their life to Jesus Christ. They've, they've been born again. They, they believe in Jesus Christ with all their heart. But after they give their life to Christ... Then they step back onto that performance treadmill, and they start performing, and it becomes all about them and how well I do. And that way, if I'm doing well, I can point to me. If I'm not doing very well, I can kind of hide out and hope nobody looks at me. But when they hear that word, such a great salvation, I believe they think, because I've heard them say that kind of thing to me, I want that But I'm not sure that's for me. I think that's for persons who are holier than I am, who don't sin as much as I do, who aren't just such a mess-up like I am. Here's the great news. That kind of salvation, that such a great salvation, is for every person who has ever confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who has repented and believed on Him as their Lord and Savior. And so, before we end up, but before we finish walking through these verse by verse, I pray. If you're already convinced of that, I pray that you'll be convinced fresh and new. If you're not yet convinced of that truth, I pray that before today is over, every one of us will be totally, absolutely convinced of that. So I want to look at three characteristics about God's salvation, the salvation He offers to us free. I want to look at three characteristics to help us understand how great how amazing His salvation is. First, I want to look at the duration of God's salvation. That is, how long does it last? I grew up in churches that told me it lasted until I sinned a certain amount, and then it was history. God would yank it away. But if I would repent and come back again, He would give it back. Uh, Let's look at what Jesus says, okay? Jesus Himself in John chapter 3 says this about it. He says, and Mo, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, a whole other story you read about in Exodus where uh, Moses was told to put a brass serpent on a pole. The children of Israel had been bitten by serpents and were dying. And he had them put this brass serpent on a pole, lifted up on this tall pole. Guess what? A great picture of what was going to happen to Jesus. Uh, so it says, as that happens, so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have what? Eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Now, Jesus is still talking about Himself here, but He is speaking. That whoever believes, and that word believes here doesn't mean just, oh, I believe He existed, not in our head. That means, believe means embrace Him as your Lord and Savior, as Faithing him, putting your faith in him, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what eternal life. The apostle John said it this way: Whoever believes in the Son has what eternal life. One more thing, while there's audience participation, all right? Eternal means how long? Forever. So here's what I'm going to choose to believe: When I say how long does the salvation last? Because it's a good question. I need to know if it's going to last or if it's not going to last. Is it something that I have an annual renewal period? Do I need to renew it every month? what, What do I do? Is there something I have to do to stay good enough to keep it? And here's what Jesus said. He, first of all, He never makes a mistake. He's God. He has never made a mistake. He never will make a mistake. And so He chose to say, if you'll do this, if you'll confess your sins, if you'll receive me, believe on me, I will give you forever." life, eternal life. So the simple, the simple approach for me is this. If Jesus doesn't make a mistake, He chose what to name this gift He would give each of us if we will repent and believe on Him, and He chose the word eternal. So I believe with everything in me that the duration, the length of our salvation is eternal. Second characteristic is the completeness not just the length of it, the duration of it, but the completeness. In other words, yes, it lasts forever. It starts now when I receive Him and it lasts forever. But does it do everything it needs to do? And so let's look in Romans 8 to find out that it's complete. It's lacking nothing. Now, let me back up just a little bit. We read Romans 8 beginning in verse 31. Back up a couple of sentences into verse 29. Romans eight twenty-nine. And it says this in the New Living Translation. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son. Now, you may have a different translation than this, and it may say He foreknew them, or some big word like that, or it might even use some word like predestined. That means He knew beforehand who would receive him. Now, Now, do not get caught in the quicksand of saying, well, if God knows, then why would I ever tell anybody about Jesus? Because it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, it will. And I don't have to worry. Uh, I can just live however I want. And if God plans for me to be saved, you know, before I die, he'll just kind of snatch me up and make it happen. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of two parallel truths that God's word teaches, and none of us fully comprehend it but we can believe it. We can embrace it. It's like uh, the railroad tracks, the two rails of, of railroad tracks. As long as they run parallel, the train can run along in safety. If somebody decides that they need to separate like this, you have a train wreck. If someone decides that they need to be brought together like a monorail and that train is designed to run on those two rails, then you also have a train wreck. And so that's what happens to a lot of people. They train wreck because they decide they can understand God and so if they study hard enough they're going to understand God and what happened is God put these two truths in the scripture to help us understand that we are not God that he is these two parallel truths are this God knows every choice we'll ever make God gives us a choice whether we receive him as Lord and Savior or not I don't know exactly how those can coexist but they do because God's word says it and so he knew in advance So beforehand, he knew what he was going to do. Second thing it says here, uh, beginning in, uh, let's see. For God knew his people in advance, 29, and he chose them to become like his son so his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Were brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. How cool is that? And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. So he chose us and then he called us. You go, I don't know if I've ever been called. If you've ever, 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 had a desire to have your sins forgiven and to know Jesus Christ, He has called you. Because if He didn't call you, that desire wouldn't even exist in you. Then look at this. It says, And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. Some translations say He justified them. Here's the picture. The judge calls me into the courtroom. And he reads the charges against Dwayne Arledge. And he says, this, 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 this. And when he finishes that lengthy list, I'm preparing to say, guilty as charged, Your Honor. Because I know every one of those to be true. And he says, because you have received my son, uh, because you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. All these charges are not only dropped, they're... Taken completely away. That's justification. That is what this calls right standing. In other words, we're able to stand before Him with a right standing, not being guilty of or responsible for all the sins in our lives. I, I, I don't know how more complete that could be. He justified us, He gave us a right standing, not guilty. And then a final little phrase here. And having given them right standing, He gave them glory, His glory. Now, this is not God making me as awesome as He is. Don't misunderstand that, okay? We have enough people think, thinking they're awesome, but who are not. But He gives us of Himself. He, his Holy Spirit resides in us. And then also, it says, ultimately, in heaven, after we pass from this life to the next life, that we are glorified with Him, that we are in heaven in His glory. And for God, that's not a future tense thing. God sees the past, present, and future like it's all in one plane. We see it in three separate categories, but God sees it all as the same. And so He gave us His glory that will be ultimately manifested when we get to heaven. Listen, if I'm not guilty in this life and I come to heaven and I'm judged worthy to come in because of Jesus Christ's blood shed for me and because I received him as my Lord and Savior, I believe that that is complete enough. So the length of his salvation, the duration of it's eternal, the completeness of it is absolutely effective for everything I need for salvation. One additional characteristic. The third one. Let's look at the quality of God's salvation. In other words, far beyond how, how long it is and how effective it is to accomplish what we need, there are some other benefits. There are some other great things. The quality of his salvation. So let's look at, in Romans 8:31 and just walk through verse by verse for several sentences, a couple of paragraphs here. And it says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, initially, you might do just like I've done for years and miss this one word or one phrase, for us. God is for us. Listen, a lot of the people I know and talk to every day will say, yes, I believe there's a God, but he's probably pretty ticked at me. They don't understand. God is for us. You see... From the moment we become His children, b- before we ever become His child, He is for us. But when we become His child, no matter who is against us, God is for us. He is always for us. We, we could forget this thing of Him constantly be, being irritated, watching, looking to thump us on the head and say, I knew you were going to mess up again. That is not the God the Bible pictures. He is for us. Let's keep going. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he gave his son. He gave his son. How will he not also with him, his son, graciously give us all things? In other words, when he gives us Jesus Christ, he gives us everything we could possibly need to to live this life, to know him, to be whole, to be set free. He gives us all things. That has to improve the quality of any person's life to be given the gift of Jesus Christ. Keep going. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Those who are born again. It is God who justifies. I, I think the, the, the Apostle Paul here gets a little bit indignant in, in this. Uh, not not uh, smart aleck or in your face, but it's, it's just kind of a holy, uh, righteous indignation of who can bring a charge against any of God's children? God is the one who justified us. Who is to condemn? And the answer to that is nobody. Christ is the one who died and was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. We don't need a human priest interceding. Jesus Christ is our high priest. You read that in the book of Hebrews. And so we go directly to Jesus Christ. And so here's what we have nobody can bring a charge against us to say, hmm, I don't think that Dwayne Arledge deserves salvation, or I don't think this person or that person deserves salvation, and begin condemning. Here's, Here's what happens. Satan, the enemy, works hard at condemning us every day. The Holy Spirit works continually to convict us. The difference is this. Condemnation calls out attention to your sin, and then says, you are unworthy. You're a terrible person. You should quit trying to act like a Christian because you're just a hypocrite. You should quit going to church. No reason to read the Bible because you're never going to get better. That's from Satan, the enemy, and condemnation always pushes you away from God, from his word, from his people, from worship, from the teaching of his word, and here's what happens when the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we listen to the Holy Spirit instead of the enemy. See, the enemy is good at making what he says sound kind of like what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, because the Holy Spirit starts with that same first sentence, Dwayne, that was sin, but then the Holy Spirit says... If you will confess that sin and allow me, I will put you back on track. I'll bring you back into the Word of God that has the power to clean you up. I will put you back on track. I'll put you back in worship in God's Word all, and fellowship with other Christians so that you can be fulfilled and blessed. And we end up listening to our flesh and the enemy a lot of times, and we get pushed further and further away. The Word here says, who can condemn us? nobody nobody because jesus christ justified us and then at the very end of that notice this jesus who is at the right hand of god who is indeed interceding for us he's petitioning god for us he's our high priest and for the quality of what we need in our christian experience he's constantly all the time there interceding with the father on our behalf and then Let's speak about quality here. What shall separate us? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives this list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer to that is nothing. Nothing. No thing can separate us. We don't need to have separation anxiety because we're never separated from him. We don't have to worry. We can quit trusting our feelings and we can trust the fact of God's word, God's truth here. Let's go on verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Okay, get this. If we're talking about the quality of the salvation He gives us, we win. He promises we win. Now that doesn't mean we get to define what a win looks like. That doesn't mean we get to define... Our triumphant position over everyone else. That that's that's not our place. That's God's place. But he says, We are more than conquerors. And then the grand finale, verses 38 and 39. It's like he he's over, the Apostle Paul is just overcome by the Holy Spirit, and he wants to summarize, just so if anybody is still doubting he says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, dying nor living, neither one of those can separate us from God's love, nor angels nor rulers, uh, heavenly beings or demonic beings or rulers of this earth, nor things present nor things to come. In other words, nothing in my present life or worrying about the future, none of that can separate me from God. Nor powers, whether that's human powers or demonic powers nor height nothing is tall enough nor depth nothing is deep enough to separate me from god's love and then he says just in case i miss something nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord now listen one more time the duration the length is eternal the effectiveness of our salvation is complete And the quality of our salvation is off the charts, good and amazing. Listen one more time from the New Living Translation to that passage. Just let the Holy Spirit minister to you of how good God is, how amazing His salvation is, as I read it one more time. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing, justification with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. There's an answer for us. Where is God if all of these things are in the world? Sin brought these things in the world. No, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every person who has ever been born again absolutely has every promise in that. The only response I have to that is, what a great salvation. Will you buy?